0: The book of Ephesians is a most powerful writing by the apostle Paul that addresses centrally the issue of delegated authority and the power of submission. As we begin to even unpack the concept of the power of submission, I'm fully aware that in the three set pieces uh, used in Ephesians 5 and 6 to speak of uh, the, the the power of delegated authority, this, the availability of abuse in regards to these three uh, forms is right on the surface, you don't have to scratch very deeply to see that in the husband-wife relationship, in the father-son relationship and in the master-slave relationship, the power, the potential for abuse is, is right there, you don't have to look very far. And in fact the history of the human race um, would make it abundantly clear that Abuse is seemingly inseparable from submission. So I must go back and dig a little deeper and speak more as to what is it that lies behind the call to submission, the Greek term, hypostasis. H-u-p-o-s-t-a-s-i-s which means uh, standing under or standing upon an authority and the fact that, that authority is over you is why one stands under it. And it's the, it's the principle of obedience giving you access to all the authority to which you are obedient. Whoever The principle is quite, is quite simple and yet thoroughly invasive, meaning if you submit to, a, to divine authority, if you submit to the authority of another, divine authority is pristine authority, it is free of taint, it is free of uh, of all the tendencies toward manipulation, control, etc. because it is, in fact, the ultimate form of authority, nothing challenges it, it is plenary authority. It does not need to manipulate, it does not need to coerce, it does not need to threaten, it does not need uh, to put at risk a person's interest, quite the opposite. It's a presumption that the functioning of this authority is always and without exception for the benefit of those who are subject to that authority. Now obviously, this is going to require at every stage of the practice of this authority from delegation, to execution of this authority, it's going to require the fear of the Lord and a clear and continuing understanding that whoever has authority is functioning on behalf of another in all the forms of authority that that we've we've listed- the husband-wife relationship, the father-son relationship, the master-servant relationship. These are the three forms of authority spoken of in the book of Ephesians chapters 5 and 6. It is distinctly different from authority constituted from the collective will of the governed. It It is important to understand that any authority that is formed outside of a grant of divine authority must have the safeguards to it that protect people, oddly enough, from the exercise of that authority. Such a thing is not necessary, in fact it flies in the face of the nature of divine authority because divine authority has no peer, it is the ultimate authority because it is rooted in God Himself. This is called, in in legal parlance, this is called plenary authority. It means authority from which there is no appeal. Now it is at once the most fearsome form of authority in the sense that uh, there is no way to avoid it. And a requirement that one submits to divine authority is a giving over of oneself. On the other side of this authority then, it means that one has to have implicit trust in the benevolence of God who possesses this authority and to which one now has come to be voluntarily submitted. Just for the sake of contrast, in democratically elected governments, the source and origin of the power to govern is reserved to the people. So the ones who are being governed reserve the right to withdraw their permission from those that they have elected by whom for their authorities to be exercised. Increasingly, of course, we are observing that there is a distancing between those who have been elected to govern and the ones who elected them to govern and in fact it is part of the current global crisis in the collapse of democratic authority. It is not that the principle itself is so horrifying, it is that this disconnect between the leadership and the people who appointed them has become so glaring and the unresponsive nature of elected officials to the ones who elected them and the attempt to garner arbitrary authority quite apart from anything they were were constituted to have is in fact at the root of the collapse of governance across the world today now it brings into focus then whether or not such a process as uh, authority derived from the consent of the governed can actually functionally produce the benefits that the the adherence to that form of governance hope for it to have you know ultimately it's a question of accountability and if elected leaders are not in fact accountable to the persons who elected them, um, then can that form of government endure? I believe that is the current test that uh, democratically elected governments across the world are facing as this urge toward garnering more authority than what was given uh, gains momentum. All of this points to the very timeliness of examining the form of governance that is derived from the arbitrariness of God Himself, which is to say, you may not advise God on how He exercises authority. You may choose to be subject to the authority of Christ uh, the authority of God as manifested in Christ or you may choose not to, but you may not choose what that authority looks like and the scope of its power to govern. Now there are consequences to rejecting that authority including being separated from any notion of God Himself and the ultimate consequences of that. But we do not get to decide how God rules. It is not a mixture of democratic politics or the politics of representational government as well as uh, divine uh, divine support. Uh, Just a word on this at this juncture. This is at the heart of the misunderstanding that is plaguing the evangelical church at the moment it presumes that democratically derived uh, freedoms, freedoms uh, retained by the consent of the governed, those who who uh, retained authority in a Bill of Rights, now have freedoms that are attributed to divine uh, origins. That's nonsense. We either have the freedoms we reserve to ourselves or we are subject to the authority of Christ. We don't have both, we cannot have both. They're very different forms of governance. If we insist that we, the people, are the ultimate source of authority and we reserve to ourselves rights as under the Bill of Rights, we have those rights in that framework of government. But if we try to import the government of God and superimpose it upon this democratic form of governance, we have something that does not work, it does not fit. There are two distinctly different forms of governance. One is arbitrary, the the governance of God is arbitrary, uh, it, is, it does not require your permission, it does not seek your permission, it does not depend upon one agreeing with God. God is simply God and it's vastly different from politicians who depend upon the goodwill of the people. Now to conflate reserved freedoms with divine rights is about as uh, far from what is true and workable as one can get. And that's why conflating our citizenship in the kingdom with our citizenship in the United States or any uh, any country in which citizenship uh, is governed by uh, the will of the people collected and presented through governmental forms, they are absolutely irreconcilable forms of governance, totally different. But unfortunately we find that there are so many leaders in churches today who don't know the difference and therefore conflate the difference in stirring up constituencies to act as citizens of states under the guise of being Uh, the body of Christ and that that whole thing is misleading, Um, it it is fostering a growing warfare in uh, in cultural circles and the rest of it, but the muddled thinking is entirely unhelpful and is going to cause a backlash of persecution in this country as people begin to resist being uh, forced to obey uh, legal mandates forged by people in power who claim to be Christians and backed by "quote unquote" a Christian majority, the backlash to that is inevitable and it's self-caused. It has nothing to do with uh, with the world and the church. It has to do with two forms of citizenship, one believing something very different from the other. And God will not come to the rescue of persons so misguided and misled. I don't care what theory we have about these things, God will let the matter play out Now out of this will come things that have divine relevance, but that's for another time. But I want to come back to the importance of uh, the submission to to the authority of Christ. As I mentioned, the the Greek term is stasis, which means to stand under. Hupo is under, stasis is stance, to stand under. And really, it's not as though one bears the weight of what is over them, it is that what is over them by way of governance and authority protects and preserves them because it's the nature of the authority of God to rule for the benefit of those who are subject to that authority. Therefore, any form of divine delegation must have these observable features. In short, in the three set pieces, husband and wife, father and son, slave and master, if this is the, represents the forms of delegation of divine authority, then the husband must rule for the benefit of the wife. Why? Because the husband is a type of Christ. The husband does not independently possess authority over the wife, not unless you're talking about a representational form of Christ and the church. Outside of Christ, this is not a form of governance that works because it is rife for abuse there are no restraints upon it except perhaps the goodwill of a husband toward a wife but no one ought be asked to submit no woman should be asked to submit to the authority of a man who is not who does not understand that he is a delegate of christ and is bound to the representation of Christ in the possession of this form of authority. It cannot work apart from Christ, it is not a form of governance designed for um, operation outside of Christ, but it is a way of life and it is a way of life that is meant to put the nature of God on display governed by, bound to the forms of authority rooted in Christ. Now, in the same way, the requirement that the wife submit to the husband would be um, impossible if the husband were not willing to regard the wife the way Christ regards the church. Apart from Christ, you do need laws to protect the weak or the disadvantaged in society from those who are advantaged. So I do not have anything against secular laws for the preservation of the lives of and well-being of citizens. I think it is critically important that there be all kinds of laws to regulate the behavior of the powerful as it regards the weak. But let us never conflate such forms of governance with the kingdom of God, they are not the kingdom of God and therefore they do not yield the picture of harmony and peace that the kingdom of God promises and indeed delivers when it is practiced. We cannot conflate the two, it is a dreadful mistake to do that and yet it seems to be uh, the thing that is in fashion today. Let's go back now and look more intently at where this authority to govern uh, came from, how did Christ get this authority? Well in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, He declared, "...all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me." And He commissioned His disciples to go and preach the good news in His name. Now when we come to Christ, we are added to His body and because of that He, as the head of this body, rules the body. We do not have our own authority when we are assembled to the body of Christ, we are covered by this authority and we have to hope that this authority exists for our benefit. And that's what Ephesians one begins to tell us. That God made put everything under Christ, and made him. How did he put it? Made him to be. Uh, here it is. God raised Christ from the dead, Ephesians one, uh, verse twenty, and raised and seated him in heavenly places far above all rule and authority, power, might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this present age but also in the age to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church which is His body, that the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. So, when we're assembled to the body of Christ, he is our governing head, possessor of all authority. And he rules then for the benefit of the whole of us who are subject to his rule. That's why then we are under him, as the the body is under the head, as the human body is under the head, so we are under the headship of Christ. Now it bears for us, since this is the model for marriage and the husband is a type of Christ, husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. And as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their own husbands as unto the Lord. Since this is the clear model, of representational government, it is critically important that we go and look at what kind of benevolence is invested in this form of governance because it instructs the husband as to how he should treat the wife who is required to submit to him. Now just before we look at that, let me point out that in Ephesians 5 where we were, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. And here is the quantum of that love and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up for her. And in this way, husbands are to love their wives as their own flesh. No man ever hates his own flesh, but loves it and cares for it just as Christ does the church. Speaking of washing her with water through the Word, this isn't about necessarily doing Bible study with your wife. (laughs) It's amazing how we make religious uh, um, practices out of things that are meant to be uh, life examples. When does a husband actually wash his wife with the Word? Various groups would say, well that's, they have Bible study together, they read the Bible together, they pray together. Well it's a good thing to do that, but it's probably more profitable to do it on your own because God will speak to you on your own, not necessarily in a group text. <laughs> now, when does the wife, husband actually wash the wife with the word? in every moment where there's conflict or when the wife is in distress over some matter, what happens is every form of authority that God has established, He supplies what is needed in the moment. Now where this breaks down is sometimes the conflict between a husband and a wife involves the behavior of the husband and at that point he's very loathed to find himself subject to the authority of Christ, let alone being the messenger of a word that brings comfort to his wife. That is why he himself must be under supervisory authority. Everyone in authority must be under authority. So that husband needs to have a spiritual father to whom the wife may appeal to bring the balance back to the relationship, not only for the benefit of the wife but also for the growth of the husband. So that if the the husband is distressed because some error on his part, some occasion of fault on his part is being disclosed to him by his wife and he's not wanting to hear it and rejects it, he's incapable of washing her with the word because his mind is in torment at that point. So a spiritual father to whom the wife may appeal can come in and and restore the soundness of the mind of that husband even if the matter in controversy concerns him. Now I'm not suggesting that every time there is a controversy and every time the wife is in distress it somehow has to do with the fault of the husband. That's not true, that's, that's the other side of the coin. So, But there needs to be, in every occasion, the husband has to have the presence of mind to speak the truth to the wife and it cleanses her thoughts. Whether it is if it's his fault he repents and asks for forgiveness or if it's something in her that needs amending or straightening out, he can speak objectively and dispassionately to her to correct the issue in her or to raise her up to another level. So washing with the word is hardly a reference to Bible study, husband and wife Bible study. It is bringing bringing back Peace, bringing back order in the times of the wife's distress. Now these things are to be taught in the body of Christ. I mean, if we are the bride of Christ, how does Christ, who is the Word, wash us with the Word? Well He sends the Holy Spirit to remind us of what is true, for the purpose of correcting us, bringing back alignment. If a husband were as perfect as Christ, that's what, that would be what he would do every time. And it would never fail to correct and restore the balance within the relationship. But when we come back to the next message, I want to go all the way back to talk about why this authority, this authority of Christ, is so trustworthy and you don't need to be afraid of it. We'll get into that when I come back in the next broadcast. I'm Sam Solon. I'll see you then, bye-bye.